the abounding joy of New Testament hope. And this morning, continuing with the topic that I, I introduced last Sunday morning, that's online if you were away or something like that, how faith and sin, how faith and sin are each generated by where our hope is placed. So, the life of faith, holiness, and an entrenchment in sin, enslavement, bondage, both of those things are accelerated in either direction by the placement of our hope. And I want to start looking at the, the tools that, that the devil, I, I, it still doesn't bother me using that word. A lot of people don't talk about the devil anymore. Um, the tools that he uses, here's what we're going to do. The tools that he uses to entice us to misplace our hope. Okay, that's what we're doing today. Psalm 33, 13 to 22. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he, he looks out. I guess I should have done that, sorry. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is now, see, a false hope. That's what we're talking about today. A war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might, it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who, there are two things here, who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. Now, what I want to talk about, are those two things, or are they the same thing? The eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death, keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. So that hope thing, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help, our shield. Remember, the title of this series is The Abounding Joy of New Testament Hope. For our heart is glad in him, because we trust. That's like hope. We trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us. Look, even as we, say it with me, hope in you. Let's pray. Our heart's desire is that this not be some kind of academic theological study. Our heart's desire is that your Holy Spirit will come and show us how, how you want to work this truth in our lives and shape us by it. And so we need your help on both sides of the pulpit to come and accomplish your will. In 
Jesus' name I pray. Amen. It is interesting the way this text equates, I mentioned it when I read it, fearing God with hoping in his steadfast love. It's in that 18th verse. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those, same people, on those who hope in his steadfast love. So, so if I'm thinking, fearing God is, is, is not somehow just trembling before him. There's a place for that. The Bible talks about it. Fearing God is remembering to include him in the securing of my life. Maybe even more than that, fearing God is not daring to exclude him in the satisfying of my life. The point here is fearing God and joyfully hoping in God are not two things that are opposite. We're still in a series on hope. And the psalmist says we fear him. We fear him in this sense. I fear the Lord in that I dare not put my hope in anything less than him. Now, you would think that would be relatively easy to do. There aren't any better objects for our hope. It should be a no-brainer. Only it isn't easy. It isn't easy for us because we are constantly bombarded with false options for our hope. That's what temptation is. That's what all temptation is. A, a biblical definition, a working definition of temptation is simply being offered some other object of hope other than what God has promised. Since the Garden of Eden, Satan works to sort of throw us back onto ourselves as objects for our hope, for our own security, and for our joy, for our satisfaction, for our own pleasure. And you, you can see... If you look for it, you can see how this same list of false hopes, it actually gets repeated quite a bit in the scriptures. Here's a classic example. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, Let not, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, that, that's, that's, we're talking about where you, your pride, where it's anchored. Let him who boasts, boast in this, not that, not that, not that. Those are false options for hope. Let him boast in this, that he, that he understands and knows me. That, that, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Last week we, we just started looking at the tightly knit bond 
between false hopes and sinful hearts. That's what we introduced last Sunday morning. My life, my life becomes uh, not just slightly imperfect, like we all are, but my life will be dominated by sin when I come to believe the promise that a particular sin holds forth. So, so sin always begins with some kind of false hope. That's how all sin begins. We, we believe something about the possibility some false hope holds out for our future. Every temptation to sin comes from the false promise that it will work. It will work in some way for us. So sin always, first, sin always addresses our hopes in some way. It'll bring satisfaction. It'll bring security. It'll bring joy. Jeremiah lists some of the things that come and say, put your hope here. This will work. And as we said last Sunday... This is almost, uh, it's why it's almost impossible to, to draw a sharp distinction between hope and faith. You can talk about them like they're two things, but they don't function like two separate things. Because sin always offers satisfaction in some area of life. Every sin starts with a false hope. And then faith, at least biblical faith, it's always cherishing God's promise more than the false hope that sin offers. So that's how hope is related to both faith and sin. When we, as the psalmist described in our opening text, when we place our hope in the Lord, faith tastes the goodness of God's grace, the provision for our future in advance. Because we hope in the Lord, we pursue satisfaction in his promise. And in faith, in faith, we say, like we used to sing, your loving kindness is better than life, better than anything I can discover or deliver on my own terms. Jesus, you alone are the bread of life. We looked at that last week. Jesus, you alone are the living water which takes away thirst permanently. The thirst of sin's promises is quenched by the water of life in Jesus Christ. So hope is faith delighting in God's promise for my future life. This is the one thing, the Bible says, that disarms the power of sin's false promise. This is what John means, 1 John 5. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Once the power of false hope is dashed, temptation loses its hook. So there's victory. This is the victory that overcomes the world. That fight, the fight that we all face, the fight of faith, is between true hope and false. It, it, it began the moment creation burst on the scene. The very first thing the devil attacked in the garden was Eve's 
hope in what God said. Her faith in the future goodness of God. This is what he does. Did God really say that? No, 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 no. There's a better way I have for you. Don't put your hope in what God said. Put your hope in what I'm telling you. What I'm trying to say here is that the serpent's lie never varies. He is crafty, he is, but he is not complicated. He's a one-trick pony. The approach is always the same, and it is always directed at your hopes. Where will you look for security? Where will you look for joy? Where will you look for satisfaction? It's the same ploy over and over, repeated trillions of times since the fall. God doesn't have the best for you. I'm offering you more than God is going to give you. You will be better off on my terms, usually your own terms, than on God's terms. Now, I doubt very much that most of you had a conversation with a snake as you were coming into church this morning. Or maybe you did. It's the same battle that rages in every person's mind. Satan's tool is, is, is the stuff of this world. He calls out to our pride. And the way he makes his appeal is he's constantly trying to offer you something more attractive than God's promise, more sustaining, more joy-producing, more satisfying. And what we're going to do, this is a long introduction for a shorter message, so don't panic. I know we didn't get to point one yet. I shouldn't have told you that, should I? It was going so well. Here's what we're going to be doing for the rest of this morning and the next few Sunday mornings, although we'll interrupt it for Christmas, of course. We're going to look at the specific tools of Satan's craft. We want to learn how he erodes our hope in God, thereby how he destroys faith, our one tool for victory in this life, It's my belief that the devil goes to church every Sunday. He rides the go train with you. He's in your carpool. He gets right into the middle of every argument you have with your spouse. He attends committee meetings. He works in your classroom, college, university, school. He works every minute of your life to keep you. He has only one goal, to keep you from hoping in God. That's all he cares about. He is not really interested in you at all. So today we're going to start examining the toolkit, all right? I already hinted at it. The things the devil uses to keep us from hoping in God. And the first tool of choice is always the same, pride. Pride is, pride is the chief species of unbelief. I mean, pride is, pride is anti-faith, anti-hope. Pride in self is the opposite of trust in God. And, and this is what becomes really clear when you study the scriptures. Um, pride isn't usually painted in the colors we expect. 
It isn't usually shaking my defiant fist in God's face. It isn't walking around admiring yourself in a mirror. No. The kind of pride we're talking about manifests itself by what I refuse to trust God to provide for my life. Our opening text from Jeremiah, I read it. It lists the competitors. God's competitors in a proud heart. Let me just show you the one verse that will simplify things. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. Notice those words carefully. You might think this is a text about wisdom, might, and riches. And it is, sort of. But the important thing is the verb in front of those words. It's it's this one. And this one. And this one. It's the, it's the boasting that should catch our eye. These verses are about pride before they're about anything else. These are the options chosen by a proud person in place of God's promise. This is where a self-reliant person places his or her hope. You'll notice that list. Wisdom, might, riches. It's not that these things are wicked in themselves. God gives all good created gifts to us. The problem is the dysfunctional nature of my heart. Because of my pride in self, I create, I create competitors against hope in God. Hope in God alone for for two particular desired ends. Security and satisfaction. So wisdom, might, riches. Really, those are just the means of the proud to accomplish what God alone wants to provide. Human wisdom, human might, human riches. Each one of these tempts me to take satisfaction in myself. My wisdom... My might, my riches. So that Jeremiah text, I want to look at it just for a bit. It pinpoints where pride frequently manifests itself. Point, point number one. Pride in our own wisdom. First part of verse 23 of Jeremiah 9. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. We need to be careful when you read something like that. The problem isn't being wise. We're told to be wise. The Bible both recommends wisdom, in fact, commands wisdom in all of life. But, but biblical wisdom is always defined as, as sort of the opposite of self-reliance. Proverbs 9, verse 10, the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So, so biblical wisdom is described in exactly the same ways as our opening text actually described hope. Maybe, maybe you can remember these words. The eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. 
Same thing. And that similarity isn't accidental. Biblical wisdom, just like biblical hope, fears the Lord in the sense, in this sense. It only calculates on the basis of God's character and God's command and God's promise. Wisdom relies on those things. Genuine wisdom never functions apart from God's promise for our security and our satisfaction. In other words, it's very easy to take, to take pride in our wisdom, boast in our wisdom, to the extent that we, we trust our rationalizations, our arguments, our powers of reason, our plans over, over the revelation of God's word. It happens all the time. This is the perversion of wisdom. We take pride in our wisdom when we plan our means for securing our future on our terms rather than God's. We take pride in our wisdom when we plan our strategies for victory in our circumstances because God's taking too long, not answering our prayers. We take pride in our own wisdom when we scheme and sort out our revenge rather than allowing the sovereignty of God to work all things for our good. So no, the biblical picture of, of wisdom is, is, is quite different. Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't, don't lean on, those are the important words, your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Underscore those little words, do not lean on your own understanding. That's the breeding ground the proud kind of wisdom that is the breeding ground for future sin. You almost always have your own understanding, your own view, your own perspective. Probably you can't help that. But when your understanding of a situation, your scheming, your planning when it's in contradiction with God's word, God's promise, God's spirit, then don't use yours. That's what that means. Don't lean, don't lean on it. Don't use it. Let's get practical. Here's how, here's how we can start doing this properly. Allow the Holy Spirit some space if you want to write something down for your life. Here's a sentence. Allow the Holy Spirit space between your initial impulses and your reactions. My, my own experience is, here's where I blow it or succeed, depending on how I respond. The Spirit of God tries to break into my reflex reaction. Don, your, your first impressions are wrong. Don't go by your fallen heart. Don't be swayed by greed or anger or love of attention or love of revenge. Instead, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean this way. Just wait. Trust in the Lord. We're talking about the power of hope to create a holy person here. That's what we're talking about. That's what's at stake. Trust what? What do you mean, trust in the Lord? Well, 
Trust that while your way may have come to your mind first, and while your way seems to offer such immediately gratifying results, or perhaps while your way seems to be the only way you can even imagine will ever work, trust in the Lord. Trust that God's way will accomplish more for you in the long run, though you can't get your head around it yet. Put your hope in the Lord. Bank there. Invest there. The next pride that's listed is pride in our own might. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Pride in our might. We take pride in our own might when we treat whatever power God has given to us through it as if it were a tool for our disposal to accomplish our own ends. My own abilities, my skills, the things I learned, the things I can do, things I can do well. I take pride in my might when those dictate the, the future course of my actions. When I think of my own might, independently of my creator, I will always abuse it. It will always lead to sin. And you see that warning over and over again in the scriptures. Let me read up. It's a little longer than I would normally read in a Sunday morning sermon, but it just shows this better than I could ever say it. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 8. When you hear it, you start to see this passage unfold. You'll probably remember these words. Deuteronomy 8, starting at verse 11. Here's the instructions. As they're getting ready to approach the promised land, take care, take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when, when you have eaten and are full, have built good houses and live in them, when your herds and flocks multiply, your silver and gold is multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, then, then your, heart, your heart be lifted up. We're talking about pride here. Now pride in might. Your heart gets lifted up. And here's the result. You, you forget. Not deny. You forget the Lord your God. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Next slide. Who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. Who brought you water out of the flinty rock. Who fed you in the wilderness with manna. See, you're, you're going to rely on your might? Really? Who fed you in the wilderness, 16, with manna that your fathers did not know that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware lest you say in your heart, here it is, my power, the might of my hand. Let not the wise man boast in his might. Right? My power, the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. I think we're all meant to see the difference, aren't we? 
between, between saying, thank God for bringing me out of Egypt when I hadn't a hope of getting out. It's a world of difference between saying that and saying, it's truly amazing the way I escaped from Egypt. And the difference isn't just politeness. The difference is, is the way I see my life tended by God, secured, provided for. The difference is whether I build my life around hope in God or the ingenuity and power of my own might. And here's the thing. Only hope in God is a response of faith. Self-reliance creates a deeper and deeper vulnerability to whatever bondage. Future sin will bring into my life. Great Christians don't just know this. They remind themselves of it. Psalm 33, 16 to 18. This is David. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it, it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. This was our opening text. On those who hope in his steadfast love. All right. There's the first step. David is a king. He talks to himself as king. And he reminds himself that the king isn't secured or satisfied by his own might. And here's the effect. Here's the effect of reminding himself of all of this. Look how David continues in verses 20 and 21. We didn't get to those. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. And look what happens. Our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Now, now, we start to see the role of hope in the Lord and deliverance from future sin. This, this is the theme of this teaching. And once be, you begin to live all of life with your soul waiting for the Lord, you will make fewer and fewer mistakes. Fewer and fewer really big blunders. Less and less dominating power of sin. The third thing, and we're almost done. Pride and wisdom, pride and might, pride and riches. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, Jeremiah 9, 23. I think this cuts real close for all of us. Globally, when we talk about the rich, we're in this room, right? By far, we're in this room. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. Don't just sit here and think about somebody who has more money than you. Us. Riches feed pride. Because perhaps more than anything else, money is our world's symbol of self-sufficiency and security. 
Why do people want riches? Well, we want riches because money gives us the freedom to do the things we want to do. Listen to that again. It gives us the freedom to do the things we, underline, the things we want to do. Money makes us feel more in control, more autonomous, less restricted. All of which, of course, is simply another way of saying money makes it more and more possible for all of us. Money makes it possible to live unto ourselves. Who can stop us? Which means you're not hearing some, some you know, brainless coot telling you money is just all bad. That, that, that's not my point. But this, is, this much is true. Riches, riches are more than anything else easily used by the devil to make us live less unto God because we, we don't need to. Money pride is not an instantaneous departure from God. It doesn't happen in a single moment. And in fact, it rarely looks sinful while it's happening. But, but look at these insightful words from, from the prophet Hosea. Somebody get that. But when they grazed, they became full. There's somebody that's not hearing that. Tap somebody on the shoulder and say, did you know that's your phone? You don't hear it, but it is your phone. When they grazed, they became full. They were filled. Their heart was lifted up. And then the same thing as as our Deuteronomy text. And therefore, here's the reason, they they forgot me. It's, It's a domino effect. They grazed, they were filled, their heart was lifted up. That's the inclination towards self-reliance, pride. And then it just says, well, they just, they just forgot. And remember the whole point. The whole point of this realization. When we are satisfied with anything less than God, we are sucked in by the alluring false promise of sin. Remember what we said earlier. Temptation. All temptation gets its power over our wills by offering us substitute objects for our hope. Our hope for security, satisfaction, joy. And there are a thousand and one false objects for your hopes, for security, for satisfaction, for joy. And your only protection, this is why worship is so important, your only protection is to, the psalmist said, He urges, delight yourself in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord. Create counterweights. This is the constant fight of faith. Delight in the Lord with all your heart. My delight in God isn't complete until it becomes an intrusive delight in my life. Until it starts to restructure, 
starts to reorganize the patterns of my life, the way I use my time, my thoughts, my entertainment. This kind of truth, the battle of false hope that comes from pride, this kind of truth isn't something you just learn once. It just calls for constant and diligent remembrance. Remember. Re-member. Reapplication. I love those words that we read from Psalm 33. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as or in proportion to We hope in you. Steadfast love of the Lord doesn't just float down on your life like dew from heaven. We we, we keep ourselves in God's love to the extent, to the proportion that we fasten our hope to him. Wisdom's good. Don't, Don't rely on it. When, it, when it's contradictory to what God has revealed, don't lean on yours. Hope in his. Might, ability, talents, the things you can do, that's all good. Never get to the place, never get to the place where the things you can accomplish lift your heart up and keep you from hoping in God hoping in the Lord. And our riches, wisdom might riches, there is nothing that the devil can use more effectively to anchor your hopes to this world. Nothing. Nothing that he uses more than your bank account. Hope in God. And here's the thing. That is where gladness is. Only only it doesn't look like it until you prove it true. It's one of those things. Let's pray.